Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast today. Owen and Murph are here, ready to go. Hello there, Owen. I'd like to ask you a question, Murph. To uh, please. The worst injury you've ever played through. Have you ever gone through the pain barrier in pursuit of sporting glory? Oh, no. No, <laughs> right, okay. I've, I've, I've never done that. Um, I would say that I have, among the lowest pain thresholds of any athlete to have ever played at any level in any of the major sports in Ireland. I, I, I was going to put that athlete in inverted commas there, but you've... It's okay. Yeah. Done, I mean... Job. I mean, certainly... I mean, I, I've told this story before. I broke my collarbone and the referee gave a free for the challenge that broke my collarbone and I kicked the ball over the bar after... Oh, well, that's... Well, yeah, impressive. but I mean, I was in shock. That's, I mean, that's fine. Shock is as good a motivation as anything else. By the time... The 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 resultant kick out was being taken. I was in a heap, crying. Uh, well, I wasn't in a heap actually. I was trying desperately not to move because if anyone who's broken the collarbone knows, if the slightest movement of any part of your body is enough to really you were physically hurt. crying. Yeah, I was. Yeah, um, uh, having like having kicked the free, I was like, okay, that seemed a little bit sore, but I think I'm fine now. And then all of a sudden, the initial adrenaline hit wore off and. Uh, yeah, so I was uh, I was in tears uh, walking off the field. I was 19 at the time, I think, 19, 20 maybe. And um, yeah, that wasn't very nice. And I'm trying to think of other times that I've been injured. I haven't really, didn't really get it. I, I, I eschewed physical contact wherever possible. I used to break a lot of thumbs and fingers for some reason mm. in particularly in primary school. <laughs> don't know what was wrong with my little Mr. Glass uh, hands. Mm. But I do remember one stage, break, playing on, breaking a finger, playing on, uh, and then the result being announced the next day in school over the intercom. I don't know if the principal did this in your school, but he, he'd announce, no. uh, oh, you know, the junior team, I think we've been junior team, whatever, fourth class, whatever, you know, at that stage, have beaten whoever it was, whatever score. Mm. And uh, I got a little mention for my bravery for soldiering on. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I just, really, I just wanted to bring that up as a yeah, means as, to as, discuss Jose Aldo. Okay, well, as long as someone somewhere in the sporting world was injured, then that's fine. I remain it's doubtful that sure. Aldo can suffer a bone bruise to his rib and a cartilage injury and still be ready to fight Conor McGregor on July the 11th. I'm going to say, mm. the UFC say, in light of recent reports regarding the status of US, UFC featherweight champion Jose Aldo, UFC has received official medical confirmation from several doctors that Aldo did not suffer a broken rib. Following a review of the scans, it's been determined that the champion suffered, like I said there, bone bruise to his rib and cartilage injury during training. I'll just go through the rest of the statement here. With this news, Aldo has expressed that he has every intention of facing Conor McGregor at UFC 189. Uh, while Aldo has indicated that he will compete in Las Vegas on July 11th, the UFC has confirmed a contingency plan. Number one featherweight contender Chad Mendes 
will face McGregor for the interim UFC featherweight championship in the event Aldo cannot compete. UFC remains committed to delivering the featherweight and the welterweight championship fights at UFC 189 during UFC International Fight Week in Las Vegas. I think that's the key sentence at the end there. The show will go on. The fight mm. will go ahead. Don't, don't sure unbook those flights. Don't unbook those flights. Don't not watch this, uh, is what the UFC seems to be saying here. Mm. You don't know. Aldo's obviously a tough cookie. You don't get to that level of sport without being it, but... Uh, you got to be a little bit uh, dubious as to whether he can actually be fully yeah. functional by that day. Sounds, sounds to me like Chad Mendes will be uh, in the ring. Um, it doesn't It doesn't seem like there's... It, <laughs> a bone bruise to a rib doesn't seem to me something, you know, a cartilage damage. That seems like a pretty full-on... It's going to be weird, though, for McGregor if you are preparing for one fighter and then it could be that on the day before it's yeah. d- d- confirmed that you're fighting somebody completely different. Yeah, it's, well, it's kind of interesting, actually, because John Kavanaugh uh, writes a column for the 42.ie, and he's... Um, coach, for those who don't know. Yeah, and he was writing this morning uh, saying that uh, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever to their preparation because they never prepare with the other fighter in mind. Uh, there is no opponent, is one of their uh, phrases. Yeah, we pre- never mm. tailor our preparations based on opponents, and this is sort of like the most extreme version of that that you can think of. I find that, uh, I don't know, the, the, I, now that I hear Kavanaugh say that, immediately I'm thinking of, of times that McGregor has said that, and he, does, he often says, oh, this guy's just, a, just another face, is mm. what he might say quite a lot. And that might be true when it's somebody of more limited technical ability. I'm not sure if he would genuinely be looking at it that way. It's part of the overall matter. We had John Kavanaugh here in studio, and we talked to him, about a lot of things. He's a very interesting character. We talked to him, one of the questions, one of the lines of questioning was, what happens when McGregor loses? You know, ultimately you're going to lose a fight. Nobody ever mm. goes, uh, virtually nobody goes through entire careers winning everything. And he said, we, we're just not going to lose. You know, we're not, we, don't, we don't look at that. Which, he very much goes to the far end himself, McGregor, the, the very far end of positive thinking. Yeah. And so maybe it is the, the case that they convince themselves that it doesn't matter who they're facing. I would have thought, and uh, as people would know, we're not UFC experts or anything like it, but I would have thought that if you're fighting guys uh, in a combat sport of completely different styles, you'd have to tailor your own approach somewhat to suit the person you're up against. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just uh, you... I suppose you pay the respect, you pay your opponent that respect that you that you study them. I suppose, but I mean, it's, it's not even that. I mean, it's a case of how easily do you want to win the fight? How uh, comprehensively do you want to win the game, the match, whatever whatever style of uh, whatever sport you're playing in? Surely it it does pay to pay a little bit of attention to your opponent, but it's worked out all right for the guys so far. I suppose. Uh, I mentioned my new favorite reality TV series a few weeks ago, Kieran. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, Flavor Flav. Flavor of Love. No, that was only earlier on this week. Snoop and Son of Dad's Dream. Well, I mean, I wasn't that far away, was which I? Which follows Snoop's journey with his son, Cornell Brodus, through as it could be his final year in high school. Largely involving Snoop shouting at his son and calling him a wimp and saying he's got to be a little bit better. But then explaining in a searing piece to camera afterwards that he's only doing it for the kid's own good because he mm. has high, high expectations. If he didn't, if the, if the kid wasn't talented, I wouldn't be giving out to him like I do, is essentially the message that Snoop delivers. But anyway, I hadn't realised that uh, that kid has now gone to UCLA or is on the way to U- U- UCLA. Not the only rap icon with a son at US Murph's alma mater. P. Diddy is accused of three counts of assault with a deadly weapon <laughs> for an incident involving a coach, a very annoyed player, an overbearing father mm. and a kettlebell. Yeah. An alleged incident, I should probably say, at this point in time. Yeah, and I mean... You know, a kettlebell. Again, I, I tend to eschew James wherever possible, but they do seem like reasonably heavy-duty piece of piece of kit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's not great. Re- I mean, I'm trying to think of how embarrassed I would be if, as a 19-year-old, <laughs> my dad started sort of wandering around telling people, like picking fights with people who thought I wasn't as good at sport as he thought I was. I mean, that's pretty embarrassing. I mean, it would have to be a hurl in your dad's case, I would have thought, or any Irish father. I don't know if kettlebells. May, yeah. No, certainly I was 19 in 2001. Of course, James didn't come to Ireland until uh, 2011. <laughs> the I first gym was built in Ireland. First gym, uh, I think it was 2011. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, if if Dad was wandering around Milltown swinging a hurl, telling people that I should be on the Milltown senior team or playing <laughs> midfield or something, I don't really. My 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 key reaction to that would be, you know, sure, I hope he doesn't hurt anyone, but that would be like 
the third reaction. The first two reactions would both be stop embarrassing me, Dad. I have a feeling yeah, Brian Murphy might like this story. Before we look ahead to the weekend's championship fo- football, which we'll do in a second, maybe just worth a goal of the season, mention of the goal of the season candidate in the under-21 hurling championship last night, Murphy. Oh, yeah. Just swept the internet. Yeah, well, the Irish portion of the internet was swept by this. Yeah, absolutely amazing goal in the Wexford Offaly under-21 Leinster semi-final yesterday. Um, and uh, Wexford were kind of, they were in charge uh, anyway, um, but uh, the goal that ended up being finished by their substitute, Cahill Dunmer, was a full length of the length of the field move with two of the most outrageous deft flicks to uh, teammates running onto the ball that I think I've ever seen. Uh, absolutely brilliant. So we'll send a link to the um, to the YouTube clip yeah. uh, once the once the show is out there because it is pretty special. Oshi McConville and Anthony Moyles are here. How are you, lads? On his phone. All good on. Yeah, pretty good. Thanks. Uh, I want to start before we get into the weekend's games with uh, Tommaso Flatter. The news that he stepped down as leash manager after their defeat to Antrim. I mean, they were ten points ahead against the Division Four, a team that you called a pub team. Uh, yeah. Ocean quite recently on the show. That's right. Uh, I don't know what that makes leash a Shabin team <laughs> <laughs> uh, how shocking how damaging a defeat is that for a team potentially long term well for, I for think it, I think it's probably uh, it's probably fitting that we should give Antrim a bit of a bit of a heads up because yeah. not only were they diabolical against Fermanagh uh, have a, had a pretty poor league campaign uh, things really don't look right in the county but to add insult to injury the county board seen a fit to play a, a, releg- a, a hurling relegation playoff match the night before and wouldn't ha- wouldn't give on it. Uh, put Frankfurt Simons into a tricky situation where he, he had to either play them or drop them, and essentially he he dropped them. Uh, I thought he was very pragmatic about it afterwards because he said, "Look, at, they were dropped for the game. They're back in the next day, and and that's what we do. That's what we do." But Honestly, on uh, at least we're nine points up. I, I thought I got out of the car when we were nine points up, and I thought we're talking about a twenty-point defeat here. And for Anthem to turn that around is absolutely amazing, and they deserve a huge amount of credit for that. But you can, I can only imagine what Leash. How does it? How it just shows you how your season can turn around in a couple of weeks, considering they should have beaten Kildare and and should have beating them quite well the first night and we're being talked about at that stage as possibly the most creditable I wouldn't even say challengers to Dublin yeah. but maybe the team that could do a, put up a little bit of resistance to Dublin yeah because they have done in the past sorry because yeah. they have done in the past and, and they've been able to go to Crow Park and, and at least keep the score down whereas other teams have really struggled with that someone I think said maybe it was before the first Kildare game that physically there would be a team that could match Dublin but Maybe physically they could, but mentally they weren't anywhere near the, the, where they should be. You know, and a lot of people are talking about, okay, did that come from Florida? Was there discontent in the camp? Da, 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 who knows? But um, their failings showed, obviously, the first day against Kildare, where they should have won the game, let Kildare back into it. Even till the last few minutes, they could have won it. It wasn't like Kildare just all of a sudden caught up with them. and You know, they could have won it even with a minute to go. The second day again, they started pretty well that second day against Kildare um, and were cruising really and should have had a penalty, should have had a goal. Quigley had a point blank, like it was, it was, it was harder to miss it than to score it and then they just absolutely imploded, like imploded. So it didn't really surprise me the Antrim result um, in the sense of once the kind of... The, you the, obviously the, hadn't seen Antrim. No, no, I hadn't, <laughs> no. Well, you told me. But once the kind of... The, the, they had started to get a bit of kind of momentum back into it. I said, "Oh, Leisha, Leisha, dodgy here." When I talk about this being a, a potentially damaging result, obviously it's damaging in the term, in, in the short term, and that they're out. But I mean, for say a group of players in a you know, reasonably small county, the sense of embarrassment that's maybe attached to something like that can that be a, a stigma? Nearly that's uh, from not sensationalising this too much. I mean, that can be hard to shake off for a while. It can be hard to shake off, and I'm sure. The one thing you don't want to do, you just don't want to leave the house the next day. You don't want to go to your work. You don't want to get back involved. And I suppose the big thing about it is that it was a very damaging weekend from Leash's perspective because you think, well, the focus has changed to the hurling, and then you tor- the hurlers turn up and they get they get hockeyed after that as well. And and uh, it's a pretty damaging result. But the one thing you have to come back then. Tommaso Florida, of course, he's going to take a certain amount of flack. But if you don't have the players, you don't have the stuff to work with. There's not a big pile you can do about it. The only thing I would say is that 
as a manager, you want to get the best out of the very best. And I'll use it as an example, Monaghan. They're getting the absolute most out of the players that they have. And as a result, they're punching slightly above the weight, probably. But uh, Leash, for the for the players they have, certainly, okay, them and Kildare are probably evenly matched, but they should be beating Antrim. Let's, let's be realistic about it. Yeah, and... There is there is kind of a uh, an 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 image out there of of Leash being a county that when things aren't right they're really wrong mm. that that they have they've they have a, a propensity over over the course of the last twenty or thirty years <clears throat> to lose games that you actually think they're physically yeah. incapable of losing. I think that that's kind of the really disturbing thing from sort of Leash's point of view that you know this is obviously very embarrassing. But you know you like say you talk about players there. You know, all you can ask of Leash is that they get they, they get to par. Yeah. You know that they perform to par with the level of player that they have, and losing to Antrim is well, well, well above par. But this kind of talk that goes on, um, like that's the I think I believe that's the eighth manager they're going to have going into number nine since two thousand. Okay, so there's been a lot of change as well, like a lot of other Leinster teams. You know, Mead, Kildare, etc. Um, but this kind of talk, like. I can't remember who wrote the article, but but I don't know where people were getting this that you know they're the team who are best matched to face Dublin. Now, if best matched to face Dublin and Leicester was being bet by fifteen points, okay, maybe they were. But you know there was this kind of it was nearly being alluded to that they they'll run Dublin close. They would not have run Dublin. They wouldn't get near to Dublin. Like I mean, because I was looking at the team. They really don't have any forwards bar Kingston and Munley. Munley was marked really out of it by Ali Lyons, so they were relying on Kingston against Kildare. Once Kildare kind of shut Kingston down, they didn't really have any other scoring forwards. So, like, this idea, I don't see much coming through. I don't see much... Like, it's, it's, it is, it's a very, very damaging um, result. But O'Flaherty will, will, will be axed, as he has been. And then they just put a new man in place and away they'll go again. So it's this merry-go-round that's happening in a lot of counties. You know, are they actually going to fix the problem? Have they challenged in minor? Have they challenged in under-21 in the last number of years? Have they really been up there? No, they haven't. And until they solve that. Like, I mean, you think of that good leash team in the, in the 2000s, like Beano McDonald. They were winning a lot of stuff underage. They could, you know, that senior team, that didn't just happen. It happened because it was pedigree there. And at the moment... I don't think, as Oshin says, he hasn't really got the players and the next man won't have the players either. Yeah, if there was any hyping up of them, maybe it was just based on the need early on to get excited by games and the fact that the game against Kildare wasn't bad meant people yeah. were like, oh, geez, yeah. these teams are pretty well set for the coming season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's uh, Dublin kind of yeah. hove interview for Kildare now. Uh, this weekend, there's not a whole lot of talk about Kildare being, you know, well able to put it. Well, up actually, to, that's a good point. Dublin, does yeah. that put this? If we look ahead to Kildare Dublin, does that put Kildare's replay win against Leash into a bit more perspective now? Kildare aren't a team that are going to realistically score three nineteen against the Dubs. Uh, but that would be a good game if they do. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a great form lane, is it? <laughs> but uh, look at Kildare. You know, they'll 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 have to come up with some sort of plan to try and stifle the Dubs slightly. But Jesus. You know, like Jason Ryan, uh, he has to be awake all night, every night at the minute. It's a bit like having a an eight month year old child uh, keeping you awake at night. It's mm. it's it's something similar because the thing with with Ryan is that again he just doesn't have the stuff, and not just that, but defensively, Kildare are sh- are so poor, they're so weak. I mean, you've got Ollie Lyons, um, who is a, a good man marker, but. The thing about coming up against the likes of Dublin is if they've got six forwards, why is he's on about you know the fact that if you've two threats, you know like a Kingston and a and Munley, well you're going to stifle at least one of those. Mm. With Dublin, you've got you've got to come from everywhere. You've got to come from the middle of the field. You've got to come from the half back line. How do you stop it? When you you're, if you're talking about being defensively suspect, is that based on the personnel in there, or it's based on both? System, it's based on yeah. both, and, and I've seen them. I keep referring back to that game uh, that they played against Down as the start of the, start of the, uh, the, the first game, of the, the first league game of the year, and I still go back to that in that they looked like a team who weren't quite sure how they were going to set up defensively, and they kept chopping and changing the whole way through through the league so much so that they come to. Uh, to play Leash in the first round championship when it looks as if more or less they're going man for man, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't know whether that's it's a horses for courses thing. 
Yeah. Wow. Or, <laughs> I can't I, believe you. <laughs> I can't believe it either. But I don't know if, if it's you know you you see what opponents you have and and you you you, you sort of you cut your claw to suit that and, and but going man for man against Dublin you're gonna get it's just a, it's just a game. The last time Kildare played Dublin in Crow Park, Kildare started really well, and you would say to yourself. Jesus, if Kildare could just start really well, it doesn't matter. Even if they start really well, they're still, still going to get pummeled, I'm afraid. Yeah, and even if you look back at Jason Ryan's time in Wexford, mm. I mean, he actually he gave Dublin plenty of it at a time when Dublin weren't you know, probably as good as they are now, but still when they were very dominant yeah. in Leinster, and yet they just actually didn't have the def- uh, a commitment to defence to shut Dublin down and actually win yeah. any of those games. And he, they did actually run them close you know, year after year after year, yeah. but he didn't actually have, you know, he did brilliantly with that Wexford team, but the one thing you couldn't say that he did was develop a really Something coherent like defensive setup that... But he set up pretty well, Murph. You know, like, if you remember, he did set up pretty well. He Like, what he did with Wexford was, and a, and a stamp of, because uh, we played him a number of times, was that he was extremely patient. They were an extremely patient team. They slowly, they did this really slow build-up, if you remember those teams. You know, Masterson would get the ball, um, he'd give it out, and um, I can't remember the individual involved, but they, they brought a half-back line back, and they just kind of went across the pitch, hand-passing, hand-passing, and then they kind of went in bursts, you know, and they looked for Brosnan or Ling inside. He probably had a lesser team with that Wexford team. Like I mean, yeah. Kildare have some very good individual players. And like, if you're talking about you know uh, competing at under twenty one level in particular over the last number of years, Kildare have done that yeah. at least you know in the way yeah. that Leash haven't done. It. So they have, you know, I think Ryan was in a very tricky situation the first Leash game. Confidence was absolutely on the floor in Kildare. Like I was found a few Kildare people didn't even bother going to the game. You know, these kind of stalwarts who would always go. They really thought they were going to be turned over. Kildare the type of county that you give them a little sniff and all of a sudden they're right we're on the road to, for September you know so the confidence is now massively up whether it's up enough and whether it should be up is a question will Ryan change things he absolutely has to do something of course um, will he revert back to type and maybe the blueprint from the Wexford days that's something he possibly could do. He has forwards. He's got a decent mobile midfield. Um, they'll try and match it up. But as Oshin says, you try and match up. You match up three backs on three forwards. And then you're saying, OK, we still have these other three. And we have another four here on the bench that can come on. That's 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 the problem. Yeah, and you're still reverting back. They haven't really found... Like, Neil Kelly burst on the scene a couple of years ago for Kildare. Um you know, and he was somebody who you thought was going to kick on. He hasn't really pl- played that much football. Fogarty has played. I think he's played more or less every game this year for them. But it, there's still nothing really new about them. Still go- reverting back to Alan Smith. You know, who, who has don't get me wrong, has done really, really well for them this year. But you know, he hasn't done well against Dublin in the past. I think he's been taken off more or less in every game that he's played against Dublin. And uh, Fogarty, yeah, inside is a bit of a threat, but. I don't even see them as a track going forward either. All right, Go on. let's have a little look at Meath, Westmeath. Anthony, I know you might be uh, a little bit nervy about this after the concession scores against Wicklow, but Westmeath have never beaten Meath in the Championship, I'm right in saying? How little of a look do you want to look at this? <laughs> <laughs> Is that enough? Yeah. <laughs> Done. No, they haven't, no. Um, Is that going to change this weekend? It potentially could. Um, I think it's Westmeath's greatest chance. Uh one oh three, we brought them... They, they should have beaten us in 01 and 03. Uh, Desi missed that unbelievable 14-yard free in 03, and we ended up beating them in the in the replay in, in Mullingar. This is uh, an enormous chance for them. Mead, I think... Now, unless I'm completely wrong and Miko Dowd has something up his sleeve, but you will be very worried, as we spoke after the Wicklow game, you're very worried about conceding 3-12 against Wicklow, especially with all the news emanating and the rumours coming out of the Wicklow camp, whether they were true or not. But disregarding all of that, he's got a very young defence. He's going to get a couple of players back, um, big players, I suppose, um, who will strengthen the whole thing. But what I would like to see, and I haven't seen it, is, is there something different? Are they playing a different way? Are they setting up slightly different? You know, all reports back from the Wicklow game, it was just like charge of the light brigade there was no presence at all in the half back line the half backs were completely overrun no one coming back to help out the defence um, a pretty inexperienced midfield that probably don't realise well actually we have to defend as well as go- attack and when you've got a, a half forward line of Graham Riley and Andy Tormey 
they just want they will attack, attack, attack. They won't really do too much on the defensive side. So you need someone, a couple of individuals to help out there. They didn't have it and they were nearly overrun. They do the same setup against Westmead, Westmead will win. This is a conversation we have quite regularly though. Does tradition play a part here? And it shouldn't, obviously, a top level sport. But if Westmead are in with a, a chance with 10 minutes to go, maybe a point up, maybe a point down, is that when it starts dawning on them that this is the chance and this is something to weigh on their minds? It shouldn't. Like, I mean, it's been too long. It shouldn't. It, 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 like, it really shouldn't. I've seen kind of a few articles this week talking about it, but really, it shouldn't. It wasn't even a thing of, you know, when we were playing, did we see Westmead tighten up? The O three one was absolutely enormous in the sense of, like, I mean, at least in O one, Ollie scored an unbelievable goal to, to level it up, and we came back from nine points down. But the O three one was, like, I mean, last kick of the game, just put it over. Desi would usually put them over in his sleep, and he missed it. And that you visibly could see every single player just half. Like, I mean, the, the, you could have put a third string team out in this in the replay, and we were going to beat them. That does take a while, but that that group of players are well, well gone. You know, this group of players, I'd say. This is a massive. I, I really think this is a very, very tricky game for Mead. Um and it'll be probably the most exciting game in there this weekend. It'll be tight, yeah. um, and if Mead win it, it'll massively benefit them. Um, but I'd be pretty worried. West Mead shipping a lot of scores too for yeah. a team that are that are set up defensively. It looked quite decent going forward. You know, they have a bit of a bench and that Dennis Glennon to come on seems to make a difference from the bench. Don't know if, he, if he'll start at the weekend or what. Mead look re- really, really flaky. We t- usually talk about Mead as in big physical team. They're not a big physical team anymore. They miss Gillespie in the middle of the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 fear for, have, yeah. I fear for Mead this weekend. Yeah, they're going they, to have you do yeah. fear for them. Yeah. yeah, Kevin Riley, Brian Menton are going to be back. Mickey Newman's apparently going to be back. Yeah, in, you would think that those players are. That they're, that's exactly what they needed on the back of the, the Wicklow defeat. Yeah, Menton's a big one. Kevin Riley is kind of, he doesn't know until the day or something, so you wouldn't really know. Uh, Shane O'Rourke may play a part, I, I believe. Um, Gillespie's gone. Gillespie's a massive loss. He's, a, he's an intelligent player. He's a and, and, he, and he's that kind of domineering kind of midfielder, but he also realises about the defensive work. Um, look, it'll be tight on, but I would be... I'm not overly confident. All right, Oisin, Donegal Derry on Saturday night. Maggie Clerken was here after the Armagh game and I was we were trying to work out how it was that Armagh just looked like they stopped working or didn't weren't quite as... Uh, it didn't have the level of intensity required at that level. And he said, look, Donegal, come for your legs and they break your mind uh, as a way of explaining it. Are Derry any better set up than Armagh were to deal with what Donegal do to you? <coughs> well, the funny thing was that Armagh theoretically should have been better set up than they were. A kick pass in the first minute of the game took 10 Armagh players out of the game uh, and left James Morgan one-on-one with, with Patrick McBrady, which is, for me just seemed like absolute madness. And from that moment on, honestly, the game was up. Mm-hmm. And you could see Armagh, Armagh were, were absolutely dejected by the fact that they had given away that early goal. Next thing, our keeper kicks a uh, short kick out to James Morgan. He lets the ball through his legs to score a point. And literally from that moment, like it was over. Uh, Donegal were very impressive on uh, for all Armagh, Armagh being very very poor on the day. Derry Derry will be will be better set up defensively. They have a very very good full back line. Derry in particular, uh, McBride in the corner has done well, and I can't think of the other guy's name. Oshin Duffy, yeah, who's who's in the, who's in the other corner, who was absolutely exceptional. Uh, against Down, I thought he, he marked Connor Laverty, and that's a hard job to do. And he mm. completely nullified his influence on the game. Um, so Derry will be better set up defensively. They're better man markers. Uh, they're decent in the middle of the field. They have Lynch and, and Bradley up front. Just think that Donegal will snuff out that that threat of Bradley in particular. And if they do. I don't know where Derry's going to get the scores from, and Donegal seem to get scores from all over the field from different players every day. And one thing about the good thing, one thing about the good teams was, uh, and I played in a couple of good teams that if somebody was having an off day, somebody else stood up. Frank McGlynn was quite quiet against Armagh, yet somebody else stood up. Like Paddy McGrath really struggled against Throne and was was very good against Armagh. So. Yeah, I mean, it's just we. I, if you were sitting down looking at the fixtures and. 
the big thing that maybe jumped out at you at the start of May this year, if you sat down and looked at the four provinces, it's like, my God, Donegal, what a run they have to go on to even get to an Ulster final. Mm. And, you know, we would have mentioned that a couple of times over the last two months. But all I see is the team getting better and better and actually really enjoying the fact that they're out every couple of weeks. They're getting asked different questions from different managers. They're handling it in a really sort of mature, uh, calm way. All the players, as you say, everyone's had a good game. You know, everyone's had a good game so far. McBrearty's getting better with every game. I'm not seeing a, a, a team kind of, you know, like me, the 91, sort of like, you know, collapsing over the finish line in August or September. I'm seeing a team that's learning little bits and pieces every couple of weeks at their leisure, that's going to help them win the really big games in August and September. They're loving this as opposed to yeah. really, really I, struggling with it. I thought too a talent thing was um, uh, Colin McFadden didn't even travel with them to the Armagh game, and like, no, like I would have seen in years gone by if you had a player of that stature, and I played in teams where uh, it'd be panic stations. You'd be thinking, "She's not even travelling with us." Holy shit! And like. <laughs> It was just taken. Uh, Rory Gallagher was interviewed before the game. He said, uh, "Colm's not actually with us today. Um, he's got a virus, um, but it gives somebody else an opportunity." And that's exactly what it did, yeah. you know. And for them, for them to to be in that situation, and for them to be so calm. And I was walking with uh, Martin McHugh in the game, and he said he didn't like what he seen that the warm up was too casual, and they were warming up in down on the It was a very warm day, and they just went more or less went through the motions mm-hmm. of the warm-up. It wasn't as long as it normally was. Uh, it didn't look as intensive as it normally was, but I'll tell you what, when that game started, they were intense. They were going you up, a, they were going yeah. up every few minutes. They're in yeah. control. They're just, you know, they're the, whatever you want to call it, the Barcelona, they're Supreme literally just conference. going. Yeah, and, they're, and they're, as, as Murph says, they're looking at the challenge every time and going, OK, what can we learn from these fellas? Now, I don't want to go Donegal the love in mm. because I have to. I, I, I watched the Armagh game a few occasions and Armagh were shockingly bad. And I got a slight, slight inkling that Donegal were getting a little bit arrogant, right? I, I kind of felt during the game that they were nearly tapping the Armagh lads on the head and kind of going, you know, hard luck, you know, better luck next time. Thanks for that. You know, thanks for the challenge. And over the years, there has been that amongst certain teams, okay? Kerry had it, Dublin had it, certain different teams had it, Mead had it back in the day, but you get caught. You do eventually get caught. Now, I'm not saying Donegal will get caught. I don't, I'm not making any predictions, but I have a feeling that, you know, there is this kind of small little thing coming into that team whereby, yes, they're, they're supremely confident, they're believing in themselves, which is massively that they have to do, but there's a very thin line there, a very, very thin line. Like, they didn't score for 20 minutes of that second half against Armagh because they didn't have to. But they were just kind of quite content to kind of say, ah, we're, we're way above these fellas. Now, that's, that is a great thing, but I would have absolutely rather if they went and just tore Armagh apart and bet them by 25 points and said, we're going to absolutely bury you. Now, as I say, Hope West Mead one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's it's a thing of where I I really still don't think there's ability. You know, during a game, it's a very difficult thing to switch things on and switch it off. You know, and and you saw that last year with Dublin, okay, in the Donegal game. You know, and when things started to go awry, they went awry very very quickly, and Dublin were like, uh oh, you know, and then they had to try to claw it back. Donegal are past masters at shutting games down. Absolutely, they are, but. When they needed to do it against Kerry last year and find the answers and try to, t- they, they really couldn't do it. Well, yeah, which is, uh, it's worth reminding ourselves that they're not all Ireland champions because the way we talk about them sometimes it's as yeah. though they are. Have you detected that as well? Have you detected any y- sense y- of arrogance? No, I'm not sure about arrogance, but I have detected that, you know, they maybe have read a little bit into, uh, too much into who they've beaten. You know, because we're talking about a Tyrone team who still... Okay, they were good that day, and they put it up to Donegal. Mm. But you got a question: Was Duny- were Donegal, you know, really at the metal that day? How good were they? How good are Tyrone? Armagh playing were playing in Division Three. Okay, they're going up in Division Two. How good were Armagh? So we're not going to learn anything more specifically. I don't think on Saturday no. night that they, you know, if they beat a Derry team who who I don't think are, are any world beaters either. So I think that. It could be found out before the end of the year. Yeah. Okay, this is something we'll come back to definitely. Anthony O'Shane, very quick word on very quick word on Armagh against Wicklow. Are you worried about that one? Uh, no, I'm not worried about that one. I think I think Armagh will win that game. I think they'll have to be a bit of a bounce after the last right. game. 
we'll leave it there brilliant stuff Oshie and Anthony as ever great stuff thank you thank you cheers on modern day coaching what is it all about paralysis by analysis infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers fellas with earpieces stuck in their ear psychologists Clyde Woodward statisticians dietitians and as Mick O'Connell alluded to God save us it is something we're going to go into more depth in the result dependent at the weekend but I'd like to hear your thoughts Murph on Anthony Moyles' Uh, suggesting yeah. there that some arrogance is creeping into the Donegal approach no, I haven't seen it to be honest I mean I think that um, there's something inherently uh, arrogant looking about a really cool calm and collected coach uh, you know there's something about a guy who refuses point blank to do what every other manager does which is completely lose their mind on the sideline for 70 minutes which automatically you think well this guy think he, thinks he's brilliant you know um, well, then you can accuse most of the top counties of arrogance because Eamon Fitzmaurice, Jim Gavin, a lot of those guys don't tend to lose their minds. Yeah, yeah well, that's kind of what I'm, kind of right, what okay, I'm saying yeah, here, yeah. Uh, Owen. Um, I mean, you know, Davey, Brian Cody, they don't, they're, they're, they're pretty demonstrative. Um, but maybe it's a football thing. You know, maybe the, the fact that football is more closely aligned to, to soccer means that, you know, maybe that's kind of how they, that's kind of how they think they should be acting. I, I haven't seen it. I, yeah. I haven't seen any arrogance. What I've seen is... Uh, uh, players very, very confident in what they're doing and a manager very confident in what his players are doing. So I haven't seen it, but we will keep an eye out it's on Saturday. Really Coming up in today's Irish Times, Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> okay, we have uh, news on Liverpool's new signing. Uh, they've gotten quite a bit of business done uh, uh, so far in this particular transfer window, and they've signed a Brazilian, Firmino, uh, who uh, about whom people are getting very excited. Uh, Dion Fanning will talk to us about uh, Stan Bowles, voted the QPR's greatest footballer uh, in their history. And we also have Emmett Malone on this week's FAI scandal. Uh, this week's probably not on the uh, scale of previous previous scandals, but nevertheless, it's about the story in La Nación uh, newspaper in Argentina, which alleges that uh, Ireland were Ireland's players were paid $10,000 each not to injure Leo Messi during their... Uh, Friendly game in uh, 2010 after the the World Cup in 2010 in August. So um, yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. Uh, not, uh, I think a lot of a lot of Ireland's players have already been asked about this uh, from that day. Uh, they've all said it's complete nonsense. So uh, we'll talk to Emmett about that. It's US Murph time. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Get him! Touchdown! Touchdown, 49! Brian Murphy, how are things? are great boys I missed you all y'all I missed all the second captains at the Golden State Warriors victory parade last night oh Friday yeah how was that beautiful city of Oakland California what a day boys what a day you guys would have loved it they call Oakland the town that's what the uh, the hipsters the rappers all those people call it the town and I'm going to tell you the town shined on Friday always San Francisco's Little brother in the shade, always never given the sunshine of San Francisco worldwide. Oakland looked beautiful. The weather was spectacular. They had a great route. They estimated about a million people, which is like the same as a Giants parade. And then it ended right on the underrated Lake Merritt there in Oakland that uh, Oaklanders know it, but not a lot of other people do. And just a gorgeous sun-splashed Draymond Green on some sort of uh, uh, substances, maybe alcohol, maybe something else. Uh, Grabbing the mic and riffing away, Steve Kerr with a self-deprecating, hilarious speech. Uh, Stephen Curry with his little baby girl Riley up there. It was boys as glorious as you can imagine. So missed you. 
Meanwhile, though, trouble at your alma mater, UCLA. What's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean trouble? What do you mean trouble? How can it be trouble when an overrated rap mogul enters your school's football uh, weight room and grabs a kettlebell, which is, you know, a weapon of mass destruction, and swings it at uh, one of your football staffers' heads. What do you mean trouble? Mm-hmm. How's that trouble? That's just a day in the life, right, guys? Oh, my God. So, yeah, I went to University of California, Los Angeles. We've talked about that through the years. Very proud. Love to go to school there. It's a great school. Very proud school with a lot of championships, great athletic and academic tradition down there at UCLA, public school, state of California, University of California, Los Angeles. And uh, our football team's getting better lately. We, we had a downturn in the OOs and – we got better in the tens, and we have like high hopes for this coming year. And part of getting better means that you're getting attractive to like you know kind of football players, and including one kid named Justin Combs. If you recognize the last name Combs, Sean Combs, aka Puff Daddy, aka P Diddy, aka Diddy, it's his kid. And it turns out he's not that good of a football player, but it turns out the coach kind of recruited him because he thought it would be kind of cool to have Diddy's kid in the program to raise the cachet level of the program and say, hey, Diddy's kid is UCLA. Things are happening at UCLA. And what happens? Well, Diddy's kid turns out to be A, not that good of a player, and B, not that hard of a worker. So he was thrown out of the workout. He was thrown out for uh, being out of shape and not working hard in the weight room. And that was by the judgment of our very gruff strength coach, a guy named Sal Alosi. And so what happened now, according to reports... We haven't seen the video yet. The video apparently is going to be released any day now. I'm sure you guys will see it over in Ireland. That Diddy the rapper, the man himself, uh, former J-Lo boyfriend, former cohort of Notorious B.I.G., Sean Puff Daddy Combs, attacked our strength coach and then also swung a heavy-weighted ball at an intern. He was arrested and thrown into jail in one of the more embarrassing moments of, you know, guys, I don't know how bad it is in Ireland these days, but the whole post-millennial helicopter parents, parents who can't let their kids out of their sight, parents who over-parent, we now have the poster child for helicopter parents, and it's Diddy, who can't leave his college-age son alone to handle his own business and gets arrested for making uh, assault with a deadly weapon. Other than that, everything's great at UCLA. Yeah, the, the, I'm a little concerned about the, uh, my understanding of the word cachet. Uh, if, if this is what passes for cachet <laughs> in, a, in a college football program. Are you guys fans of Diddy's music? That's the question. Well, not a, well, not a massive fan. Uh, well, not as much as a, of a fan as I am of Snoop Dogg's music, Brian. And for one Dreadful moment. I thought you were describing Snoop Dogg as an overrated rap mogul because we all know of anything. He hasn't been fully appreciated for Criminally his talent. Criminally underrated Snoop Dogg. And he's say, already, yes. what more cash do they want? His son, Cordell Broad, has already plays for the team. We, not have, we don't have one rapper's son. We have two rappers' sons. In fact, if we want to do some poking and prodding, perhaps, uh, and, and, and um, Snoop Dogg's kid is apparently a better player. Apparently he might actually be a decent player. And he's an incoming freshman. So this is kind of maybe I'm going to get into some psychological um, examination here. Perhaps Diddy felt threatened by the arrival of Snoop Dogg into the program and the Snoop Dogg cachet. Now, don't forget, we have to revisit the awful, uh, terrible 1990s West Coast, East Coast, L.A. uh, uh, rap feud between L.A. and New York. Remember, that ended in the tragic deaths of Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G., but Snoop Dogg is based in L.A., and his kid is a better player. Diddy is based in New York. His kid isn't as good a player. Maybe Diddy's cracking under the pressure of Snoop Dogg's kid arriving, and that's why he cracked and swung a weight ball at one of our guys. I don't know. I'm just surmising some psychological deals. But, yes, it is true that Diddy now is the second rapper father of a UCLA football player. Um, cachet? Sure. Why not? If you can tell... 17, 18, 19-year-old kid who you're recruiting to come to your school, hey, man, Diddy's going to play the after party. You know, <laughs> that, this is, so that goes a little farther than we have orange slices and juice boxes for you. If we can tell you that, hey, Diddy's going to fly you on his Learjet and the NC2A doesn't need to know about it, I don't know. We recruited him, and, and Rick Neuheisel was the coach who recruited him. He's a very entertaining guy, Rick Neuheisel. I would recommend at some point 
you guys should have him on your show if you guys ever wanted to talk American college football. He's turned into an analyst because he got fired at UCLA for not winning enough games. But he's the one who recruited uh, Justin Combs, and he has his own radio show. And he said he admitted that he recruited Justin Combs mostly because Diddy was his dad, and it never hurts to have influential fathers around the program, especially rich influential fathers. A lot of jokes have been made about whether or not there's going to be charges pressed on this whole deal. The L.A. District Attorney is still pondering that. But a lot of jokes have been made already that uh, mysteriously charges will be dropped if a new wing is built for the football complex uh, under the name the Justin Combs Athletic Wing. You know what I mean? Can Diddy write a check and get his way out of this? He's released a statement saying he was acting in self-defense and that the video will show that. We still await the videos. Like I said, as we speak, they should be coming out any moment. And uh, apparently it wasn't just security camera video. They said personal cell phones captured it also, which leads me to wonder, too, just how savvy this young generation is that whenever they sense something's going down, they all whip out their phones and record it. I know you guys are, uh, I know you guys are younger than me, but I would say you're past the generation of being savvy enough to record something as soon as you feel like some, uh, some, you know, as soon as the stuff's going down. My first instinct isn't to whip out my phone and record it. But the new generation does, and apparently there's video on cell phones that's going to come out. Brian, I don't know. You're a busy man. I'm not sure if you've had time to watch any of it, but if you haven't, I do recommend, highly recommend, I think it's a six-part series, Snoop and Son, A Dad's Dream, uh, which shows <laughs> Cordell Brodus egged, yeah. egged on by his father trying to complete his final year in high school. His father, Snoop, maybe this is just the way they wanted to written up the, the script writers of this great show, Snoop. and Not that there would be a script writer, of course, in a uh, reality, it's a TV, reality show. TV show. Uh, but Snoop is quite overbearing and largely spends his time telling his son how useless he is and how he needs to get harder. Man, oh man, it's, uh, hey man, Snoop only wants the best from his sons. The answer is no, I have not seen Snoop and Son. Maybe I should, maybe a long, trans, uh, you know, a cross-country flight. But later on this summer, the Murphys are headed back to the East Coast. Maybe I'll, I'll download Snoop and Son on the iPad and watch it. Wow, it's got to be high-quality television. <laughs> I don't know, maybe this kid can play a little bit. I don't know. Snoop has a weird interest in youth football. He, he actually, about 10 years ago made a name for himself in Los Angeles by forming a youth football team kind of like, I forget what they were called, Snoop's, uh, Snoop's uh, uh, Raiders or something like that. But he actually produced a really good player named DeAnthony Thomas, who's actually in the NFL now and was a star up at Oregon. And the Snoop nicknamed him the Black Mamba at a young age, which is Kobe Bryant's nickname too. So Snoop made this kid famous when he was like 12, 13, 14 years old. Hey, listen, guys, we've talked about this a little bit. I Having a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, I'm only on the front end of this youth sports thing. It's out of control, man. There's pressure now to get your kids on these travel teams uh, as early as eight and under, and you got to start writing the big checks to send these kids to all these, you know, totally lame regional competitions. And, I mean, how many of these kids ever wind up doing anything with their athletic careers? I don't know, but these organizers reap the cash, and every parent falls for it including Diddy and Snoop Dogg. So they're no different than any suburban, Caucasian, affluent parent out here in the, the playing fields of Marin County, California. Just like They're just like us, Snoop and Diddy. The other character we want to talk about, Brian, is Pete Rose, the all-time Major League Baseball hits leader, who is back... Well, the reason this popped up is that uh, A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez, became one of the members of the exclusive 3000 Hit Club uh, a few days ago. And one of the articles we came across pointed out that a lot, of, a lot of characters in there have various stains on their reputation. Pete Rose being the most prominent of them because he was banned for life uh, for betting on games while he was a manager. This is back in the, would have been the 70s when he was banned, 70s, 80s. 1980s, guys. 1980s, I should say. Yeah, and yeah. over the last little while, it's emerged that maybe he was doing a little bit more gambling than he was letting on at the time. Yeah, this is, uh, this is it's simultaneously a huge story and simultaneously also a, a been-there-done-that story. Pete Rose, I don't know if we've talked about him much through the years, have we? Not really, no. He, he, he's really one of the more compelling figures in the history of American sports. Because as you know, and we've talked about through the years, uh, how Americans treasure the history of baseball. We treasure it quite mightily, more so than any other sport. And Pete Rose is one of the most historic figures in the history of the game. A, here's the simple fact. He's got more hits than any man who ever played the game, ever. That's a big, stinking deal to be the all-time hit leader. And it was a huge deal when he passed Ty Cobb. Now, you talked about ne'er-do-wells and guys who have unsavory characters like Alex Rodriguez. 
Well, Ty Cobb would be another example. An unrelenting, unrelenting racist and violent abuser of uh, people. He was a violent guy. He committed a lot. Of, he was in a lot of fights. He was a an openly racist guy who didn't want black players playing in the game. I mean, just terrible stuff that would get you pilloried today, vilified today. But Ty Cobb playing in the early 1900s, hey, man, he was just any other American at that point, right? So Ty Cobb forever was the all-time hit leader, a a mythological figure. And it seemed like it was an unattainable record, 4,189 hits. Just by way of example, the guy who got closest to him, Hank Aaron, was 400 hits behind him. It was almost like a Jerry Rice-type record that no, nobody will ever break. Like Nobody's ever going to break Jerry Rice's touchdown record. Well, nobody was ever going to break Ty Cobb's hit record. But Pete Rose came into baseball in the early 60s and, and dazzled everybody by being one of the most hard-playing players baseball had ever seen. Nobody ever ran the bases harder than he did. Nobody ever grinded out the game, got dirty. He was always dirty at the every, every game, diving in the dirt, diving for balls, sliding head first on everything. A signature mark for him was he would draw a base on balls, for a walk, you know, four balls for a walk, and generally that means you can trot down to first. He dropped his bat and would sprint to first base as hard as he could, just to set an example of nobody does that. And he nicknamed here in the nickname Charlie Hustle, which I think some people derisively put on him as a youngster, saying that he was trying to show off too much. But over the years, it became uh, a complimentary nickname because nobody hustled harder than Pete Rose. Nobody loved baseball more than Pete Rose. And he played in the ultimate baseball-loving city, Cincinnati. I mean, St. Louis is kind of maybe the most baseball-loving city, but Cincinnati's right there with it. And in 1986, he got 4,190 hits. He passed Ty Cobb. It was an extremely emotional moment in the history of baseball. He looked up in the sky, and, and he cried at first base. He said he was not one of these emotional guys, but he said he looked up in the sky, and he saw he said he saw the face of Ty Cobb and his father. Here we go with Field of Dreams, you know, and all the all the baseball mythology and all that stuff. And so people were like, wow, there's just nobody like Pete Rose. He's one of the greatest sportsmen in the 20th century in the history of America. Well, bam, three years later, the commissioner of baseball, Bart Giamatti, announces that he believes Pete Rose gambled on baseball. Now, gambling in baseball is the one thing you are forbidden forever. You are banned from the game forever. Not performance-enhancing drugs, not scuffing a baseball, not, you know, whatever, uh, uh, taking steroids. If you gamble on baseball, it is the scarlet letter. And it happened to Shoeless Joe Jackson, which is the whole history of the movie Field of Dreams. He apparently took money from gamblers to throw the 1919 World Series, the Black Sox, and he lives forever as, a, as an infamous character, not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, we were just told that Pete Rose did the same thing. So people were just blown away, minds blown. Pete Rose, he couldn't have been on baseball. Well, guess what? They found out he did, and they banned him for life from the game. Pete Rose denied it and denied it and denied it and denied it. Bart Giamatti banned him from baseball, and it became a raging debate through the 90s. Should Pete Rose be back in baseball, or should he be banned forever? He's never admitted it, and then finally, a few years ago, he admitted it. He said, I bet on baseball when I was a manager. I'm sorry I did it. And everybody's like, wow, well, we're not surprised. We all believed the report. They had all sorts of evidence and mobsters who said that they gambled with him. You can't bet on the game. You can't bet on baseball. It ruins the integrity of the game. So guess what? Now it's 2015, and time has sort of faded. We've got a new commissioner of baseball named Rob Manfred, and it was brought up, hey, new commissioner, should he revisit the Pete Rose case? Should he perhaps maybe open the door? Time heals all wounds. America believes in second chances. We all forgive at some point. Blah, blah, blah. And so the sentiments began to build. He served his time. He's the greatest hitter of all time uh, as far as hits. Let him back in. Bam. Two days ago, ESPN, outside the line, produces documents that showed he bet on baseball, not only as a manager, but as a player as well. And it's like, wow. We just got hit smack in the face with a frying pan all over again. Not only was he doing it when he was a manager, which he lied about for 20 years, but now he said, I never bet when I was a player. Now they actually have betting slips with him and mobsters that showed he bet as a player. It's over for Pete Rose, sadly and tragically, although there still is a glimmer of a debate. Do you, do you still put him in and just write on his plaque that he gambled as a player and a manager and still let kids who go to Cooperstown learn about the man with more hits of all time? Or do you put him in the file with Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, which is never to be seen again? And it looks like he's in that file, never to be seen again. Yeah, I, I saw a tweet actually uh, about Pete Rose uh, in the last couple of days that said that no one had ever played the game in a purer style than Pete Rose, and yet everything outside, off the field and outside the ballpark was sullied by this. The, the, the dichotomy between how he played 
and the news that that he bet on teams that he managed and now teams that he played, there it stood it, it stood as a complete contrast to the way that he, the Charlie Hustle that earned him that nickname. That's what I, that's the essence of the story. Is that is that, I mean, so Barry Bonds was always viewed as an aloof jerk to the media, right? So there's a lot of people who have reveled in his demise. <clears throat> Excuse me, Roger Clemens, somewhat the same way, not entirely, but he was always a bit gruff. So there's some people that have sort of enjoyed his downfall because he was never earning karmic points. Pete Rose was, was baseball. He was the face of baseball. You loved watching Pete Rose play. Nobody, I mean, you guys know in soccer or whatever, there's nothing better than a guy who plays hard, right? The guys who play the hardest, usually it's the guy who's marginally talented. But for you to be the all-time hit leader and to be the all-time hustle leader, makes him a mythological figure. And now for him to be the guy who disgraced the game, it's tragedy. Just to be clear on all this, though, Brian, he... Okay, there was um, <laughs> there was a lot of deception going on and all the rest of it, but he didn't throw games, he didn't bet, and even the new evidence uncovered doesn't suggest for a minute that he bet against his own team. He bet on baseball games, including ones that he was involved in. But he did bet on the Cincinnati Reds to win, which I think is an important distinction to make. And I was reading through the documents today that you talk about. They belong to the, essentially the guy that he used to use to gamble with because gambling wasn't legal uh, and still isn't legal in a lot of states. Uh, this guy <laughs> meticulously documented all the money that Rose was giving him to gamble. And it struck me that you're looking at somebody there who could well be in the middle of a, uh, having a gambling addiction, uh, somebody who's trying not to lose the fortune that he's amassing while playing. And I'm not trying, maybe I am trying to paint him as something of a sympathetic figure. I'm just a little bit uh, perturbed that this guy doesn't ever get to be involved in baseball and on a playing or coaching level ever, ever again when there's so much cheating has gone on in different ways and guys have been punished with two, three, four-week bans at times. Yeah, well, I mean, you're raising some good questions. The The... First of all, the aspect of betting on your own team is interesting because theoretically you'd think, well, gosh, that's almost noble. You're betting on your own team to win. But the problem is when you're a manager, that means you might easily do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do to try to win a game. And by that, I mean baseball is a 162-game season, and lots of times you don't, you don't use a certain reliever because he needs a rest. <clears throat> you don't leave a starting pitcher in to a certain point because you need him in his next start. Maybe, like, for example, with the Giants, Buster Posey always gets a rest in certain games. Maybe you play or pinch hit Buster Posey because you need to win that game because you bet on it. So you, so that's the theory that he messed with the integrity of the game. And as far as him getting banned versus guys like Bonds and Clemens, it has never – that's the one argument that Bonds and Clemens always can fall back on is that it was never written anywhere in baseball clubhouses that using performance-enhancing drugs would get you banned for life. It's sort of a loophole – but it's true. But if you ever walked into a Major League Baseball clubhouse, and I regret that I didn't get you guys into the Giants clubhouse, next time I yeah, will, right. there is a sign in every Major League Baseball clubhouse, as big and bold as you can see, that says anybody gambling on baseball will be banned for life. So this all goes back in the history. We always love talking about history. At least I try to force history on you guys mm. from America. The 1919 Black Sox so stained baseball that stat was so important to baseball that they decided uh, almost 100 years ago, 96 years ago, that that would be the ultimate scarlet letter. You could never, ever bet on baseball and get anything less than a permanent ban. And for the most part, guys, the majority, I'd say a healthy majority of people believe in that rule. Most, people, most sports fans in America say, yeah, that's right. You can't. You can't. They can't ever have an exception because if you do – you can say, well, look, at Pete Rose eventually got his uh, reward. He got into the Hall of Fame, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, uh, the problem was, too, he lied about it for all those years. So any just minor sliver of a hope he had of forgiveness, you know, it always comes back to whether or not you admit it. Lance Armstrong, you know, see Lance Armstrong and those guys. So, yeah, um, you know, it's funny, though, Owen, he has actually shown up a couple of times for corporate events. Visa hired him to appear at a World Series event at a game I was at in 2002, the Giants made the World Series, tragically lost to the uh, L.A. Angels of Anaheim. But he was involved in a visa on-field ceremony. And the weirdest thing was Major League Baseball couldn't do anything about it because Visa bought the time, and they preferred Visa's money to their attitude about Pete Rose. So they let Rose come on the field to be honored. And I'm telling you, the weirdest thing is we all gave him a rousing ovation. We had that forgiveness thing going where we felt bad for him, and we gave him a huge ovation 
just kind of one of those weird things where you reacted organically. And we all said we were cheering him as a player, but while acknowledging that he, he still can't get the ultimate honor because he bet on baseball. So you can read some calmness out there and some well-reasoned baseball guys in America who make the case for him to be in the Hall of Fame. They say, you know, like you said, there's a lot of ne'er-do-wells in there. There's a lot of people who did bad things. There, There's a guy named Cap Anson, I believe. is. The, I don't want to screw up the name. I think it is Cap Anson who actively, actively blocked black players from playing baseball and led a campaign of, uh, of boycotting uh, any black player who tried to play baseball. I mean, this is horrible stuff for society. You'd say that that's worse than gambling on the game. So and a little bit of inconsistency there. But this latest news for Pete Rose is a, a, a death knell. All right, Brian, brilliant as always, and uh, we'll chat to you soon. Thanks so much. All the best, guys. Mm. You remember my grandmother? No disrespect. When I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, "Hmm." And I know a butt whooping was coming at the. <laughs> I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born, Jane Jane James Tony is born, Iran Barkley is born, but I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien, but I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your information. I'm an alien. He should be gone. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an yeah, all right, that certainly is a fair point that I hadn't fully considered of Brian's, that betting on your team... Look, it's quite clear there's a million reasons why you shouldn't be betting on your team, but the fact that you play so many games while you're not actively throwing a game... If you're managing a side and betting on them to win, you could be waiting. Uh, you could be waiting performance more heavily, way more heavily uh, towards one of the games that you've bet on, which therefore means you're less. If you use your best pitcher in a game you've bet on, uh, even though maybe he probably should be in a different game, the chances of winning that other game suffer, and therefore the integrity is messed with. So I do understand that, but I don't know. It's just I've I've always been struck by this disparity between how. American sports fans and seem to judge, say, performance-enhancing drugs is the obvious one compared to gambling. American general has this kind of strange relationship with gambling. Part of the issue here with Pete Rose uh, in terms of this week's story is that he there's always been this murky undercurrent that uh, the gambling has been connected to mobsters as it would have had to have been. Mm. Uh, so that brings in that sort of element to it. But, you know... the. Uh, the fact that the guy is banned for his entire career and so many other people swan around, and not just the Barry Bonds type figures, but lower level uh, players who might have only been banned. Initially, there were only three, four day bans for performance enhancing drugs. That sits slightly uneasily with me. I might be being way too kind to Pete Rose here, mm. who seemed to spend quite a lot of time towards the end of his playing career and during his management career uh, engaging in completely illegal activities in a sporting sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually uh, agree with you. I, I mean, it, and it is, I think, a reaction more so on our behalf to how laissez-faire they are about performance-enhancing drugs. I mean, I think if you took the drug thing out of it completely, I think you'd say, right, well, it's obviously wrong, and just leave it at that. It's just more the the moral equivalency going yeah. on here kind of throws you a little more than in, than it would. I was struck that there's a sign, in the, what Brian said at the end there, that there's this sign in the clubhouse of all major league clubs saying mm. it's illegal to, you know, gambling on this sport will... Result in a life ban. He touched on it as well that it does go back. A lot of it goes back to that Black Sox scandal in 1919. Sh- shoot us, Joe Jackson. Like the names of the characters involved. Mm. I remember reading a book on that a number of years ago. Supposedly, there's this climactic scene where the players are all being investigated. They've supposedly seven or eight of them have been involved in this big uh, conspiracy to throw games against the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series. They're on the steps of the federal courthouse mm-hmm. or whatever it is, and a tiny little kid, a street urchin of some sort, I'm sure, with only ba- baseball as his only dream, his only way to mm-hmm. fully exist in American society, grabs to shoot his Joe Jackson by the bottom of his trousers. That's how small this kid is in the telling of the mm-hmm. tale. Looks up at him and says, 
Say it ain't so, Joe. Mm. Well, apparently that story is complete bullshit. Uh, to emerge in recent years that probably didn't happen but listen it's out there as part the of the first mythology. street urchin didn't actually reach uh, <laughs> uh, Chicago until uh, the mid 30s and so. I can't just find a little reaction to our chat with US Murph there I just can't I can't stomach the thought of the East Coast West Coast rap feud being reignited over this Murph it doesn't yeah. I, I know Brian said it but we've all been through the ringer on that one we've lost some great men uh, we, we, some great music was made sure mm. some fiery angry rap music cost? was produced I don't know what, what cost, cost uh, that's pretty much it from us for this program. You can have a listen to our football podcast, which we're working on at the moment. You can check us out on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains, and have a look at the website as well, secondcaptains.com. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.